In recent news, U.S. Congress passed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, a bill aimed at repairing bridges and roads to support energy and water systems, ensure safe travel, and so much more. But here's a question for you. How much of those $1.2 trillion is actually going to make its way to the communities it's intended for, and how long is that going to take? The reality is that despite the best intentions of governments, all the administrative stuff in the middle to actually roll out funding is slowing it all down. That means that government funding is not going to where it's supposed to. So, is there anything anyone can do about it? Welcome back to The Catalyst by SoftChoice. I'm your host, Erica Van Noort. Chris Baim is the founder and COO at Neighborly Software, a cloud-based software that is taking existing government programs and digitizing them. Neighborly Software is the ultimate example of how technology can really help the less fortunate. They've created a solution to a problem that, for decades, has been holding thousands, even millions of dollars worth of government funding out of communities that could use it. So how did we even get to a problem like this in the first place? Why aren't people getting the funds that could change their lives for the better? Chris Baim joins me on the podcast to get to the bottom of it all. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Glad to be here. So before we dive in, I have to say that as an HR leader, I was thrilled to see on your website that your leadership team page has two truths and a lie. And there's a feature for you. I thought it was so creative. (laughs) So I want to start with that. So for you, we have Chris once had a full page feature in the Gwinnett Daily News. Second is Chris was a computer programmer in sixth grade, well before it was cool to be a technology guy. Three, Chris was a runner-up in the halftime football toss at the 2007 NCAA football championship. So I have to know, which one is the lie? (laughs) Well, I have to tell you, on our leadership page, we have several employees with much more interesting backgrounds than I do. Uh, But I actually was featured in the Gwinnett Daily News, but uh, that was because the company I worked for was headquartered in Gwinnett and was being profiled. And somehow my picture made it at the front uh, of that particular profile. In sixth grade, I was a programmer, and this was about 25, 30 years ago. Uh, And so it hadn't become quite cool uh, to be a technologist. It was before the internet. In the the final one, the halftime football toss, yeah, that was not me. Um, But I thought saying that I was runner-up might make it more believable. Ah, okay. So you were giving us a half-truth, half-wishing like truth kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So I'd love to take a moment to like break down what you're seeing for the departments of community development in the cities, counties, and states that you're working with. Like, what's the landscape and the underlying problem that exists here? Every, just about every city, county, and state has a department of community development. They may have different names uh, in their particular locations. Some may be a department of housing development. Some may be community development. Some may be economic development. But they all have the same function, um, and that is to source money from federal, state, local, and private sources and come up with programs to invest that money into their communities. 
there are quite a few programs that they may choose to offer. Um, in fact, within our software, there's probably over a hundred different programs that uh, our software is being used to administer. But what the problem is and what the challenge is that we're trying to address is that historically, these programs, uh, the reporting for these programs, um, the online application of these programs uh, was not supported through technology. In place of that, they were still using paper-based applications, um, Excel spreadsheets, and, and even those that were the most technology savvy may have had a Microsoft Access database that was homegrown. Uh, so really uh, outdated technology and minimal technology support from the industry for these departments. Wow. So what exactly does this problem mean for some of those communities in need? Well, it, it may be surprising, but one of the biggest challenges with these programs um, is not the raising of the money. It's actually getting the money into the hands of the people that need it. And there are stories across the country of where this money uh, hasn't been fully depleted, even though it was available. Uh, it's certainly not due to a lack of need, uh, but rather to due to a, a largely to a, a lack of awareness. One of the, the things that we realized as we came into this market is that the folks that are administering these programs, instead of spending time in their communities doing marketing efforts and, um, you know, holding community events, um, coming up with mailers or making phone calls to get the word out that these programs are available for folks who could use them. They were spending time in the office uh, processing paperwork, um, you know, trying to make sure that they had all the data necessary to meet the, the, the very complex compliance needs of the funding sources they received their money from. And instead of spending time in the community and getting that money out, they were administering the program. What a shame. So a, a great light for them through this program that you have and, and just and what you're doing to support these communities. So tell me a little bit about the story of how you found out that this was even a problem in the first place. Interestingly, we did not start out uh, as a company focused on community development. Uh, our original platform was targeting uh, affordable housing and employer-assisted housing programs uh, for corporate types of employers. And while we were looking for our first client in that particular industry, uh, we reached out to a city in Georgia that actually had an employer-assisted housing program where if you were a, 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 an employee of the city, you are eligible for uh, $15,000 to $20,000 in down payment assistance to buy a house if you purchased a house within the city limits. And we thought, well, they would be a perfect opportunity for us to, uh, to sell our software. And when we reached out to them, we had uh, initially very good feedback. And they said that the director of the department, I still remember, she said, we do have a problem uh, in that manner. We do offer that program. We could definitely use software for it, but that's only about 10% of what I do. My real problem is the community development programs that uh, are much, much larger, have much more dollars associated with it. And I've been looking for technology for years. If you can help us with that, then you'll definitely have an opportunity with our city. We obviously took away from that, did our research, realized just how big of an opportunity it was. Uh, and that's when we begin to engage in this particular market and build out our solution to target community development organizations. Amazing. It's always pretty cool when you uncover opportunities organically like that. And it's probably an even bigger market than the one you originally thought you were going after. No doubt. So tell me about the last few years. I know your company has grown exponentially, so you outgrew your own infrastructure. So tell us a little bit about what happened there. 
We, uh, you know, were a, a bootstrap company uh, when we started out, so we didn't have a large uh, infusion of cash to start our business. Um, we didn't make uh, huge investments in infrastructure off the bat. We experienced uh, certainly the beginning a very modest uh, growth rate. What we realized quickly, however, was that we consistently exceeded our uh, revenue targets each year, uh, and it was happening faster than we, we expected to. So we recognized that there was a need uh, to, to improve and overhaul our infrastructure to support that larger scale. What we didn't realize was how quickly we would need to do that. It not only affected our infrastructure, our operations, um, everything about our organization had to scale much quicker than we planned. It was one of those things that everyone says, oh, that's a good problem to have. But it's easy to say that when you're not the one dealing with that problem. It's interesting. I always say, yeah, the good problem to have, but it's still a problem, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so... I understand all of this is powered by cloud, right? Absolutely. Microsoft Azure. So talk about what's powering all of this. Like, Tell us a little bit more about the role cloud's playing here for you with Azure, both internally and for your, quote, neighbors. You bet. Uh, one of the reasons that we've been able to scale is because we actually did start out in the cloud. And while we didn't have the infrastructure optimized for the scale we're operating at now, uh, we were able to uh, basically throw hardware at the problem uh, to allow us to, to continue to scale without impacting the availability of our application. So our clients never knew that we were challenged in that regard. We just had a very large cloud bill. Fortunately, and largely through the help of SoftChoice, we've been able to refactor our infrastructure into a way that is uh, much more scalable, much more efficient, and uh, much uh, easier to manage from a budget standpoint. You know, having our infrastructure in the cloud, uh, I come from an organization where uh, there were many uh, premise-based systems. They were managing their own data centers in some cases. Uh, and you have to dedicate so much overhead uh, as an organization to properly managing and supporting those aspects of your operation. Uh, we don't have to worry about any of that. We have Microsoft Azure as a partner. They've been a phenomenal partner to us. They take care of the security. They take care of the compliance. They take care of all of those aspects from an infrastructure side so that we can focus on the business logic. We can focus on developing uh, software as a service solution that is focused on the needs of our clients and addressing what those needs are uh, instead of trying to manage a complex infrastructure environment. Such a good point. So many organizations, they just don't have the, the same people power to support all of those things like security, compliance, governance, et cetera. And we're all going to assume that Microsoft's going to do a heck of a lot better job at it than some of us, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, one of the, one of the standard industry um, kind of audit reports that is done is a SOC 2 compliance audit. If you were to try to get into some of the large jurisdictions that we operate in without any kind of a SOC 2, it would be pretty challenging. You know, the CIOs and the CISOs of these departments are are very concerned, especially this day and age with uh, all of the uh, the bad actors out there trying to, to take advantage of, in many cases, governments. They are very serious about making sure that any vendors that they bring in-house take security and compliance as seriously as they do. Um, if you were trying to develop your own infrastructure and achieve that level of compliance, you would end up dedicating the majority of your resources as a company to accomplishing that instead of building a product that they need. Microsoft has a trust center that allows you to get access to their SOC 2 compliance, uh, as well as many of their other audit reports that we're able to leverage as an organization 
And in many cases, we almost take it for granted. It's there. We know Microsoft's supporting us and we can focus on our business. You know, being as you're, you're, you're newer to this market, you've been growing exponentially. Like what advice would you give yourself like going back a few years today? Like what would you say like, oh my gosh, Chris, you should have been thinking about this. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. I, I mean, obviously the first thing comes to mind is don't underestimate the need. It's a common you know, news track these days that there is just a, a major lack of affordable housing options. Um, and with inflation you know, that we're experiencing currently, uh, the increase in the cost of housing, that problem is only getting worse. There is a huge need for that. There is a huge need. There are people in, in very uh, desperate financial situations right now, uh, particularly emerging from a pandemic where people's employment has been severely interrupted. The low to moderate income families and individuals are, are struggling every day um, and, and rely on, on some of these programs to help them you know, achieve a positive outlook and, and to see that there can be a brighter future down the line. And I don't think we realize just how big the demand was and how much of a need was there. We call our clients neighbors. Um, so we have so many neighbors uh, that we work with. And, and when you get to meet with, with folks who run these departments, who are engaging with individuals and families in their community on a day-to-day basis to help try and make their lives better. It's it's really awe-inspiring. Um, and, it, and it's really truly an honor to get to work with them, to partner with them, uh, and hopefully uh, make it a little easier for them to do their job to make them even more effective in doing the things that they 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 are uh, that, that they want to do. I, I I wish if I could go back in time, uh, we had planned to grow even more quickly and had really tried to grow more quickly because uh, as it stands, it's hard to satisfy the demand now. Wow. Right time, right place, right need. Exactly. You know, another real success story that um, that we've seen that, uh, you know, has really highlighted, you know, the, the urgency of the need and the amount of impact that we can have. Um, one of the main programs that a lot of our communities offer is down payment assistance. Uh, one of the neighbors uh, actually asked one of their residents to come speak about the impact of the program to their city council. In that city council meeting, uh, this particular lady stood up and she said, you know, she had uh, been living on a fixed income for a long period of time. She had been paying her rent. She had long uh, believed in the dream of home ownership, uh, but felt that it was going to be unattainable uh, for her. And through the, the city's program uh, for down payment assistance, she was given $25,000 towards the down payment. She was given credit counseling to help make sure that her credit was cleaned up in a way that would allow her to best qualify for her first mortgage. She was given home ownership counseling to understand how best to prepare for home ownership. And because of that, she became a home buyer for the first time in her life. She brought her children in and they talked about waking up and knowing that they were in a place that was going to be their home for the rest of their lives. The, the feeling, the positive feeling that that gave them, the confidence that they gave them, the pride of home ownership that she had, um, the fact that she now has equity in her home. That is going to continue to grow so that she can cr- continue to, to, to create financial opportunities for her children as a result of it. it. It had many folks in tears hearing this story. And when you see that these types of programs can have that kind of real world impact on in- individuals and families, um, it's very motivating to get back out there the next day uh, and continue to work to help make them a reality. That's awesome. And and it so illustrates, you know, we often hear about the handout versus the hand up, like this really is a hand up. Yeah, no, it, it's honestly like we, we've watched that video so many times as a company. It's like, if you, if you need to pick me up or if you need to be reassured that what you're doing <laughs> is really having an impact, um, just watch that video. It's, it's, uh, it's really cool. 
in keeping with stories, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the success stories from the communities that you have been working with. So some of those neighbors that you refer to. So do you have some examples that you can share? I know our listeners would love to hear that. Uh, You know, there's a couple of them. Um, One of them, uh, there's a city in South Florida that we work with. And that city has a downtown area. It's a smaller city, uh, but it has a downtown area that you could tell at one point was very vibrant and full of life. uh, And it was largely vacated and was becoming somewhat dilapidated. And they wanted to launch a program to reinvigorate that particular area. They wanted to launch a program that would attract business owners first uh, so that they would open up a business and create employment opportunities and follow that with an opportunity to convert some of the unused office space uh, into affordable housing options. They did that through launching a grant program that allowed small business owners to apply for funds uh, that would allow them uh, to open up and launch a new business and have most of their build out covered. Because obviously this was a, a bit of a risk. It's, a, it's an area of town that had not been largely viable for quite some time. Through launching this program and they launched it through our software, they made it available. We had a number of different local uh, businesses apply for that program. They went through a qualification process. They reviewed and approved those uh, applications when they were in line with what their vision was. Uh, They scheduled and distributed money to them. In some cases, they actually distributed the money in draws or individual distributions as the project was being built out. So they didn't just give all that money over at once. And overall, at the end of the day, they attracted several uh, different businesses. So from restaurants to coffee shops, uh, I believe there's a UPS store, those things that you tend to see in more downtown areas, suddenly that's what the downtown was dominated by. People were uh, getting up early and having coffee in the uh, retail areas. Uh, That made people want to live there and they were able to convert the office space into affordable housing apartments and some condos as well. And now it's a vibrant area. I love that. And it's, it's really a story about how you've supported the whole ecosystem, right? So you've got the jobs creation, you've got the people moving in. It's, it's sort of a complete revitalization that benefits all. So Chris, I also heard that there was a Southern American city that discovered that they had $3 million that they didn't even know they had. Maybe you can expand on that. Yeah. Um, and sadly, this is a story that is repeated across the country. Again, you know, one of the biggest challenges with this programs is getting the money out the door, going even a step further. Sometimes they don't even realize they had the money that isn't going out the door. These programs can become so challenging to administer. And there are so many different streams of money that they may need to keep track of if they aren't managing their records correctly. As, as this particular uh, situation happened, they may discover that there is money that was available that gets clawed back. And in this particular case, the, the source, the federal government was the source of funds for a HOPWA program, which is a housing for people with AIDS program. Uh, $3 million was available to invest in them to create opportunities for housing uh, for people in those situations. And the federal government called after the five-year timeline expired and said, by the way, we're going to need that $3 million back only to find out that uh, they didn't even realize they had it available. Again, just tragic that there is such a need in the community for this money and simply due to mismanagement, it's not available. So uh, that's one of the things that, that we really try to help our communities with and, and what we have dashboards for that, that bring to the forefront exactly how much money that they have uh, sourced, exactly where they've budgeted to spend it, what the pace is at which they are spending that money so that they can recognize you know, what we need to pick up the pace here, 
or we're a little ahead of schedule here. Maybe we need to reallocate some funds from here over, over to this purpose. We want to help them with that so that they can have that clear vision of how much money they have and what they need to be doing to make sure it all gets out the door. I love that. So Chris, there was another example that we had talked about. I just wonder, I think it was to do with the emergency rental assistance program. So if you can expand on that, I'd love it. Uh, yeah. So um, in response to the pandemic, uh, the federal government through the Department of Treasury allocated a significant, in fact, 20, roughly $25 billion in funding. This was approved by Congress under the Trump administration for emergency rental assistance. Um, and that money was set aside to help bridge the gap for those who had uh, lost employment. Um, and some of the most common sectors you think about that were impacted by the pandemic, obviously, were retail, hospitality, travel. Overnight, people lost their jobs. Uh, and we're in very desperate situations, especially those who are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, so the federal government set aside money to help bridge that gap to when those employment opportunities return so that there wasn't an overnight influx of evictions um, and potential homelessness crisis uh, for folks who had every intention of paying their bills, had every intention of maintaining gainful employment. There was, just wasn't a gainful employment opportunity. So these programs were set up and money was distributed into cities and counties and states so that they could distribute them into their communities and help address this need. Obviously, the need was significant and the urgency was dire to get that money out the door as soon as it became available. We were, you know, I think in the right place at the right time uh, as a community development software platform uh, out of the box, we had 80% of the functionality necessary to meet the needs of this program, to begin taking applications immediately uh, and allow these uh, jurisdictions to, uh, to begin processing that money and getting it out the door before that eviction crisis really happened. So we were uh, fortunate enough to partner uh, with some of the largest states in the country. I think over over 25% of the overall uh, emergency rental assistance program money is flowing through our software. And we've partnered with them to help them take applications to make sure that the folks who are applying are truly qualified because these programs are targeting low to moderate income families. So we want to make sure that those are the ones who receive the money. Uh, we want to make sure it's done compliantly and Treasury uh, U.S. Treasury Department has put quite a few regulations and, re and requirements out there to make sure that the money, again, is getting into the hands of the people that truly need it and, and, and those that the, the congressional legislation was, uh, was intended to help. Um, and so we help manage all of those programs and all of those aspects of the programs uh, so that they can get that money out the door in a compliant manner. Right now, there are stories across the country of some jurisdictions that have attempted to build that technology from scratch. Um, and that's been a real challenge because it's a complex program. Um, and I know that there are some areas where uh, perhaps the money isn't getting out as efficiently. We've really tried to help our partners and our neighbors uh, to administer this program, get it out the door as quickly as possible, and really help the people in need who need it. Uh, it's been really, really a great program that we've been able to, to be a part of. And we're proud that uh, we were able to help uh, in some way uh, try to alleviate some of the pain that this pandemic's brought us all. It just, it, it's such an enablement story, right? Like you're enabling, there's all this infrastructure, there's all of these grants, all of these, uh, you know, business cases being built, but you're just truly that enablement piece. When we talk about technology, I can't think of a, a better opportunity for uh, enabling things through technology. One last question. So how do you think this is going to continue to impact communities? Like what's your grand vision for the future and how widespread could this get? 
Yeah. So the need for affordable housing, the need to support low to moderate income families is, is only increasing. Um, and again, you know, in the economic environment we're in where uh, inflation is continuing to occur, um, you know, folks recovering from the pandemic, uh, it's a disproportionate recovery. Um, there are many people who are not realizing the recovery in the same way that others are. This need is going to continue um, and it's going to continue uh, for a long time. So we want to be a partner of the industry. We want to uh, help these communities to uh, realize the best ways to invest the money into their community for the maximum economic impact. Right now, we've been focusing on housing, economic, and community development. You know, in the case of the emergency rental assistance program, that was a uh, economic disaster. Uh, we are moving quickly into the physical disaster market as well. Uh, so think hurricanes and wildfires uh, that unfortunately due to climate change, we continue to see more of. We are uh, well positioned to help our neighbors to distribute money in those particular impacted areas as well. We have other areas uh, of housing and economic development intended to improve access to affordable housing uh, and, and improve um, access to housing options that are closer to places of employment or offer the best uh, schooling outcomes for children. Uh, we want to continue to help those programs become realized uh, so that overall we can, as a country, have that opportunity to move forward together. These conversations about technology for good always fill my heart with so much joy because at the end of the day, it's not about the technology or the hardware or software. It's about the end result. And when the end result is a better, more equitable world for all, it really couldn't get better than that. Technology can't be created without action and neither can change. And there's no better time than now for more organizations to be making their mark. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Catalyst. And if you did, please be sure to share it with a friend or colleague and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. In the next episode, I'm getting to the bottom of what hacktivism is with Stefan Asselin of CrowdStrike Canada. Who are the good guys out there in our digital world and what are they protecting us from? Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss it. The Catalyst by SoftChoice is a Pilgrim content production in collaboration with SoftChoice. Our producers are Tobin Dalrymple and Katie Lohr. Our associate producer is Jessica Schmidt with production assistance from Nicole Francis. I'm Erica Van Noort. Talk to you again in two weeks.